Fred Plotkin wishes we'd all pay a little more attention. We smell, but we don't really absorb the fragrance. We eat, but we don't savor. We hear, but we don't listen. We touch, but we don't really connect. Coming up, he explains what it means to travel as a pleasure activist in an overstimulated world. The things you'll see in Rome can take you back more than 2,000 years. Everything around us has to be imagined on a gigantic scale, the scale not of human beings, but the scale of power. Tour guide Francesca Caruso takes us time-traveling through the antiquities of the Eternal City. And TV producer Michael Wood tells us how much easier it's now become to travel in China. You can certainly survive in the big cities without speaking Chinese, but they love it if you just try and speak a few words. Ancient Rome, modern China, and traveling as a pleasure activist. It's a stimulating hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. There's a stroll you can take in Rome that lines up some of the greatest sights in Western civilization. I like to call it the Caesar Shuffle. In just a moment, local guide Francesca Caruso points out what these sites can teach us about the Rome of 2,000 years ago and about who we are today. We'll also examine the history of Eastern civilization in the hour ahead. With 4,000 years of recorded history as its foundation, China has modernized in recent decades. It now has an infrastructure that can support its rapidly growing role as a tourist destination. Documentary filmmaker Michael Wood shares what he found while filming a PBS series about the story of China. And later in the hour, Fred Plotkin tells us how you can adopt the priorities of a pleasure activist to get the most out of your travels and even your next meal. Rome is the eternal city, and it feels that way when trying to see it as a tourist on a hot and crowded peak season day. But the greatest sights of Roman antiquity line up in a wonderful stroll. The Colosseum, the Forum, the Capitoline Hill, the Pantheon. And Rome-based tour guide Francesca Caruso joins us now to better understand what I call the Caesar Shuffle. Thanks for joining us, Francesca. Thank you for having me, Rick. Ciao. Ciao. It's a challenge to distill this complicated story into a, a short interview, but let's try. I'd like to walk with you through the Caesar Shuffle with a few practical tips and insights to properly appreciate really some of the greatest sites in Western civilization. And before we start, what's the proper mindset we should get into, the right frame of mind so we can get the most out of this stroll? So I would say to sort of do it as a parallel experience, to come to it with one's contemporary sensitivity, travelers who come from uh, a culture that has skyscrapers, who are used to tall, grandiose buildings, but also try to imagine the eyes and the sensitivity of people who walked the streets of Rome 2,000 years ago, who are not used to all that grandeur. So the effect, what's it all about? What does it mean? What's it trying to say? Put us in the context of people who don't have cars and skyscrapers and elevators and TVs and obviously all that. So we're going to start at the Colosseum. Why is it named the Colosseum, and, and what do we see? Well, it was named the Colosseum um, after an object that doesn't exist anymore. Right, right outside the Colosseum, there used to be a colossal statue of the Emperor Nero, apparently made of bronze. And uh, after he died, his memory was damned. They turned it into a statue of a sun god, and then it was melted down over time. But the size of the statue was later applied to the size of the uh, building. Now, I, I understand the Colosseum has, what, 50,000 numbered seats, and they're all into efficiency, right? So you could fill it and empty it as quickly and efficiently as we do our super stadiums. Yeah, they had um, 80 entrances, 76 of them numbered, 50,000, 60,000 people maybe could get out of there in around 13 minutes, so incredibly huh. efficient. Had you and I been in neighboring sections, we would never meet on entering and on leaving. Uh -huh. That's why those arches are called vomitorium, because at the end of the day, it was like a stomach evacuating. 
across the street, there's this amazing arch, the Arch of Constantine. And when I look at that, I think propaganda. And you're right. The arch is completely encrusted with art. It used to be very colorful, too, and it just celebrates the emperor and the things that he achieved. And that's a monument, and that's what monument means. It means memory. So that arch has no other function than standing for this emperor and his achievements and carrying his name and his memory through the ages. So absolutely propaganda. And the emperors were living pretty crazy and wild lives and uh, kind of offensive if there's people that are struggling. They had to have effective propaganda just to maintain their, their situation. I mean, once you have power over such a gigantic territory from Britain to the uh, Middle East, the big question is, how do you keep it? And how do you keep it for a very long time? You keep it also by making it obvious and tangible through monuments and by giving people the impression that they were part of all of that. And that's also the whole bread and circuses thing. Subsidize the bread, give them circuses, keep the people happy. Yes, it's an identity builder. It's like, oh, this is what it means to be a Roman. Uh, It's good to be part of this. Just across next, you look up and there's a hill called Palatine Hill. Why is it called Palatine Hill? Well, it's where the city was founded. It was named after a goddess that was worshipped there, and it's where it started. That's where Romulus is supposed to have founded it, and then later, that's uh, during the Republican period, it became the sort of Beverly Hills of ancient Rome, and that's eventually where the emperors had their palace. Palace in English, Palazzo Palais, all these words come Palatine from... Palatine Palace. Absolutely. Oh, and yeah. On the far side of the Palatine Hill, you can sit there in your palace, I suppose, on a balcony with uh, all, of, all of your wonderful... Uh, trappings, and you've got this amazing Circus Maximus in front of you. A Circus Maximus was, uh, that was a place that the the ancient Romans really loved. They enjoyed the chariot races there even more than they did the gladiator games, and those races were actually quite violent and quite fast. They had accidents all the time. They said that being a charioteer at the Circus Maximus was as dangerous as being a gladiator at the Colosseum, and that's the part that the Romans enjoyed the most. And how many people could pack the Circus Maximus? Really around 250,000, which I think makes it comparable to the largest structure for Sports Today, which is a place in Indianapolis where they have the Indy 500. So. Oh, is that something? And that's 2,000 years ago. And you can still see it today pretty clearly, the whole outline of that. You can, exactly. What is you see is the outline. Do, do you have gatherings there? I saw a Bruce Springsteen concert there. <laughs> One of the highlights of my life. There you go. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Chariot race course 2,000 years later, Bruce Springsteen. Yep. Now, I have this simplistic idea about when you have the seven hills of Rome, There was a common grounds, and originally, 700 years before Christ or whatever, the people up on these hills would come down and trade and get together and communicate in the common grounds. And that is what we have today, the forum. Is there anything to that? Yes, it's very true that they would come down from the hills initially to bring their cattle to graze and to bury the dead, and then little by little they start exchanging goods and information. That's why the founding of Rome is about the coming together of the shepherds living on the different hills, and that's a forum. And then right from day one, I think expansion was the business of state. They got this together, they started expanding, and I love to sort of get my brain around Rome. started roughly 500 B.C., it grows for 500 years, peaks for 200 years, falls for 300 years... If you were to characterize the first half of Rome from 500 B.C. to the time of Christ and the last half of Rome from the time of Christ until it fell in 476 A.D., what were the two forms of government? Well, first you have the Republic, and in the Republic you have the senators who are the representatives of the great aristocratic land-owning families. Every year there's the election of two consuls that elect two prime ministers. And instead, in the in the empire, is basically the rule of one. I mean, the Senate never goes away, but it becomes mainly just so a symbol. a little bit idealistic, a little uh, ruled by rich people in a little bit of representative way for 500 years. But it grows so big that the word Rome no longer means the city, but it actually means the entire civilized world. Everything was either Roman or barbarian, speaking something other than Greek or Latin. 
And then they realized it's just too unwieldy. We can't have this, you know, idealistic democracy kind of stuff. We need to have an iron-fisted dictatorship. Julius Caesar names a month after himself, July, and establishes that ironclad uh, rule. And that rides Rome through the Pax Romana, 200 years of stability, and then the long and torturous kind of decline. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Francesca Caruso, and we're talking about the Caesar Shuffle. We're walking together from the Colosseum through the Forum, over the Capitoline Hill, to the Pantheon. Francesca, in the Forum, we see some very fundamental um, architectural and city planning concepts. I think of Basilica. Most of us travelers think of Basilica as a church. Yes, uh, the Basilica starts out in ancient Rome as a rectangular hall that they use for everything except religion. So they use it for business meetings, for trials, appearances of magistrates and emperors. After 300 years of persecutions, when the Christians are for the first time free to build their own places of worship, they select the basilica as a type, as a model, because it didn't have any psychological, cultural connection with the religion of their persecutors. And that's when it becomes a Christian architectural term. And you sprout a couple of transepts, and it actually looks like a cross, and voila. See, it's constant evolution, but it's always the same thread. And forum, is that market, marketplace? Uh, outside, so open space. Yeah. Open space. Yeah. The spine of this open space was the Via Sacra. And my challenge is to adequately imagine the energy and the, and the jubilation and the spirit of imperial Rome at its zenith. Can you paint a picture of the Via Sacra? I think the first thing we have to remember is that ruins are the hardest thing to deal with because you go into this valley of broken stones and columns and you think, okay, what do I do? Okay, so three visual tools. Everything around us has to be imagined on a gigantic scale, the scale not of human beings, but the scale of power. This is Rome. There is no life outside of it. Everything has to be imagined full of color. And everything has to be imagined very close to you. You have to imagine it very oppressive, these buildings, these arches, these basilicas, these temples, and then full of people. You couldn't move in the forum. It was so crowded. Languages and faces from all over the known world, all around you, full of statues, painted, full of bronze. So the richer, the denser, the more grandiose you imagine it, the closer you're going to get. Now, above the Forum, we have the Capitoline Hill. And I just think of this as the capital of the city of Rome for 2,000 years. That's where the, the mayor has been or something like that. Oh, yeah, in, in antiquity, it used to be a little bit like the Acropolis in, in Athens. So the center, where the most important temple in the city was. So the religious center, no? Okay. And then we walk from the Capitol Hill across the couple of blocks further away. And we get to the building that I think gives you a feeling for the magnificence and the splendor of Rome better than any other building. And that's the Pantheon. Ah, yes. A visit to Rome without the Pantheon just cannot happen. And uh, the Pantheon is the best preserved uh, building from antiquity anywhere in the Roman world, anywhere. And it started out as a temple, and then it was turned into a church, and they still have mass there on uh, on weekends, and it used to be possible to get married there until a few years ago. So Pantheon uh, would all have been a gods. temple to all the gods. Mm-hmm. And Rome was pretty cool when it came to religion. I mean, you could have your own religion as long as you uh, followed the emperor as, as a deified character also, right? So this was a temple where you could literally worship all the different gods. Yes, I mean, it's still, uh, scholars are not so certain, but absolutely all the gods. Yes, it's a thing. The Romans adopted the religion uh, the religion of the people that they came into contact with. It's the monotheistic religions that they have problems with. Otherwise, okay. they are very so, inclusive. And in Christianity, yeah. they'll have no other gods before me. That was a big, uh, big yes. challenge for the early Christians to assert this, and they managed in the year 300 or so. The Emperor Constantine embraces that, and, and then that made things a little easier. But the Pantheon, 
amazing architecture of 140 feet wide, 140 feet tall, built on a circular plan, so Roman, so glorious, and it survived because shortly after it was a temple, it became a Christian church dedicated to the martyrs and therefore not seriously cannibalized like a lot of great buildings. And Francesca, when I step into that glorious space, the Pantheon, it must be the most one of the most beautiful architectural spaces anywhere in the Western world. And I look up, I see a skylight. What does that skylight symbolize to you? <laughs> the Oculus is the skylight that you're talking about. When I stand there under the what used to be the largest concrete dome in the world until modern times, and I see the clouds moving across it against the blue sky, I think it's Rome. <laughs> it's Rome. It's kind of connecting the heavens and the, and, oh, yes. and the temporal. Yeah. It did 1,800 years ago or whenever it was made, and it, it yeah. does to this day. And think of how many people have stood there on that marble before you in the 1,900 years that that building has existed. And the, those are the original stones on the floor, and you're standing on them. It's absolutely 80% original floor, so you, you stretch across time and you stretch across space. Just like Caesar, you're helping wear a little hole into that piece of beautiful marble. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Francesca Caruso. Thanks so much for giving us a little tour. Grazie a te, Rick. Thank you. Of classical Rome. Ciao. Ciao. We'll find out what Fred Plotkin means when he says that pleasure is a constant learning curve in just a bit. Up next, we look at how 4,000 years of history frames what China's like today. Historian Michael Wood tells us what he observed in the years he spent filming locations and events in China for his recent documentary series on public television. And that includes some that outsiders had not been able to access before. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. My name is Human Maj, and I like to travel with Rick Steves. In Farsi, that would be, Esfaman Human Majdas, Mandustaram Ba'aghaye Rick Steves, Mosafarat Pokoram. The oldest nation on Earth is primed to become a 21st century superpower. So, the more we know about China, the better prepared we are to coexist as nations and to learn from one another. Michael Wood has spent years investigating China's history, and he's produced a six-hour documentary series for the BBC and PBS on The Story of China. Michael joins us now from London to tell us what he discovered about the forces that have shaped China as a nation. From the First Dynasty, 4,000 years ago, through the Cultural Revolution that tried to erase its history in the 1970s, to the nation it's become today. Michael, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, it's great to be with you. What a challenge for you to... You've done a lot of epic sort of series for BBC (laughs) and for public television here in the United States, and this is like the ultimate to do China in six hours. How'd you do it? Yeah. (laughs) You know, the funny thing is, it's a sort of, it is hard. And the selection is the biggest thing. You know, how do you do justice to it? You know, where, which places are you going to go to? All that. And in a way, it it comes from a lifetime's thinking about China, really. I fell in love with China when I was at school in Manchester, to be honest, with, you know, reading the poetry. And and I first went to China in the early 80s and traveled all over China. And the big thing I came back with was a sense of the warmth of the Chinese people, huh. to be honest. I, I had a fantastic time in the 80s, and the people are so sociable, and uh, there's nothing that they like better than sitting around a dinner table and having a, a meal and a drink, and they're, they're so proud of their culture and all that. And yeah. I came away then feeling, you know, I loved it. So actually going back to make these films, the first thing I said to the team when we met on day one was, we got to make sure we catch that. And you did. And I I mean, we grew up in the United States of just these big 
television images of, oh, Nixon's going to China. We need uh, 10,000 people out sweeping the snow. And then everybody's out sweeping the snow. And you get these horrible downtrodden images. But when you watch your show, your series, it is that love of life and the warmth of those people and, and the welcome you received. Now, you had to break up 4,000 years of history into six hours. Before we get into travel in China and some of the best sites, how did the shows break out? What are the six chapters in your six-hour lesson on China? The series is like a chronological narrative because you've got to keep a sense of the time. you know. So it mm-hmm. begins in the deep past with the beginnings of Chinese civilization. And then we look at kind of the spread down the Silk Road and the way the Chinese first go out to the world. And, you know, Christianity comes from the West into China in the 600s. Can you believe it? You know, and you see the stuff that they, they've left behind. And then you see the great achievements in their kind of Renaissance period. And then the period of the Ming Dynasty in the 1400s when they send these great voyages out across half the world. And and then, of course, you get to the clash with the Europeans in which the British, I'm sorry to say, have a rather disreputable role with the Opium Wars and all that. And then the Age of Revolution, you know, with this whole series of revolutions through the 19th century through to 1949. Mm. So we try to give the audience a sense of where they are in Chinese history. But then we take them into the, the landscapes and the cities and the people and the mm-hmm. culture. You know, when we're thinking about this sweep of 4,000 years of history, you mentioned the Renaissance. We always think the 14 and 1500s in Europe. That was the Golden Age, the Song Dynasty. Is that right? What century would that have been? Well, that's about the year 1,000 in Chinese history, you know, when you look at their inventions. Is that 1,000 in in our years? Yeah, 1,000 in our years, you see. It's a long time before our Renaissance. And you mentioned that a third of the world's population was in China at that time. Some people think it could be as many as that. These things are debated, you right, know, but yeah. the scale of China is something that we always forget. I mean, for instance, in the time of Elizabeth I and Shakespeare and Francis Drake, England had three million and China had more than 200 million. That's the scale. And you even talked about that in your episode about the um, conflicts with Europe, the Boxer Rebellion and the Opium Wars and so on, how the British could come in with a insanely outnumbered, but still they could take over ports and they could they could manage to have their imperial power and their successes. Yeah, the, the Brits came, of course. Yeah, the Brits had a kind of devil-may-care-we-can-do-anything uh, attitude in those mm. times. And, and, of course, the Westerners were using Chinese inventions, you know, the gunpowder and compasses and the stern rudder on ships and stuff like this. Yeah. So, in a sense, the Chinese could have done all that, but it wasn't in their at all in the ideas of their culture to go out and dominate the world. It was the Western powers that did that. Now, when we think about traveling in China, because your series is it's not designed to be a, a travel guide, but it certainly inspires you to travel. Yeah. Well, if somebody was inspired to travel in China, from your experience, because you were there working for, I understand, over two years, what's the language barrier? What's the infrastructure for travelers? Uh, you know, To what degree can we have those experiences? You can certainly survive in the big cities without speaking Chinese, but they love it. If you just try and speak a few words, you know, Uh that's always appreciated. The infrastructure for travel is fantastic now. I mean, you can go into these beautiful countrysides, like, you know, one of my favorite areas where there are five sacred mountains, and these are great tourist venues where you can go walking in the mountains, and they're magic, you know. 
and one of them at Huangshan, there are these heritage villages where you can stay, and you can mm. even now stay in bed and breakfasts in these little towns. You know, so heritage villages. Does that mean it's protected by the government? Yeah, the government stopped them being developed, so you can actually stay in five hundred year old houses. Because oh, that's uh, my fear, Michael, when I think about China. Because I was, I've been in Shanghai, and it just feels like the modern commercial success is literally bulldozing the heritage. Yeah, in some places it has, and it bulldozes a lot of Beijing, for example. But in these places in the countryside. Uh, these old villages are as they were. Do you know what I mean? And they've been saved from development, and you can go and stay in them. That's a real delight, actually. And of course, these days tourism is a really big thing in China. So if you go、mm -hmm. to some of the beauty spots, you're liable to meet a whole bunch of Chinese with,、mm -hmm. you know, Nikon cameras and North Face jackets. Do they recognize that tourism is a good thing,、uh, both,、oh、both economically、goodness. and to get people together? Massive! It's the biggest tourist industry in the world, the internal tourism of China. But the Chinese, eighty million Chinese, go abroad each year now. They're the、yeah. biggest foreign travelers, so it's a big thing. And in the big historical cities, of which there are some fabulous examples, you know, it's very, very well done. And I, I'll tell you one thing: the museums are. You know, out of this world, actually, really great. Well, you showed that in your series, and I'll never forget looking at this one painting you showed. It was from 1140, and it was this、uh, just this vitality、yeah. of urban life in in Songchang. Yeah, the museum brought it to life in this cool way. Yeah, you know, it's sensational, isn't it? They've done this huge. I mean, the scroll itself is. This is a painting done in the 1100s, as you say, and it's a scroll. It unfolds, and it just shows you one segment of what was the biggest city in the world in the 12th century. Maybe the biggest city in the world until the 19th century, called Kaifeng on in the Yellow River, and it's a, a really nice place to visit today. Actually, it's one of my favourite places. But the scroll just gives you the ordinary life of the people. You know, the street stalls and the shops and the wine bars and the,、uh, you know, the camel caravans coming through and. And this, this is, goes back to 800 years or something ago, and it was animated, like it was something that was、yeah. I've never seen in、yeah. Europe. This amazing, yeah. Well, they've done a brilliant、thing. animation of it in Shanghai. There's a brilliant animation of it on a really big scale. So you walk into this huge kind of darkened gallery, and and on a huge scale, you actually see it brought to life, and it's really really great. But the if you go to the place itself, the real place. Something of that still survives, you know, and there's amazing food markets at night, and the little alleyways, and you you just don't believe what you see. China's last Jewish community, which was there more than a thousand years ago, is still there, and they do Rosh Hashanah now, <laughs> blowing the kind of ram's horns in the little alleyways. This、know. is Kaifeng. This is Kaifeng, yeah. Kaifeng, the grandest city on earth、uh, during its、uh, day earth, in the 12th century, yeah, and、uh, it was capital of China. And there's、uh, you know Muslim communities. There's a sequence in our film where they they've got about fifteen little mosques which are women only with women imams, the women prayer leaders. <laughs> you just the variety of life in parts of China is just fantastic. Michael Woods, a popular historian and TV host in Britain, where he teaches at the University of Manchester. You might remember his documentary series about India from a few years ago. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, he's telling us what he learned about Chinese history and how it impacts today's modern nation of China. His documentary series, The Story of China, has aired on public TV in the U.S. and BBC Two in Britain, and it's available as a DVD set from PBS. Michael, we're talking about this Kaifeng, and it's a city that I had never heard of until I watched your series. And、uh, my concern is when I look at that, is there's such rich history, but 
the 20th century was so devastating from a simple physical survival of artifacts point of view. What feeling did you have traveling around China over the couple of years to produce your series about surviving buildings and surviving artifacts and modern buildings put up that are supposed to replace the old ones but just don't feel old, you know? I mean, yeah. I, got, I worry about that for China because I, yeah. no, I no, feel no, like no, it's, I do too. it's not all the way there like you'd find elsewhere. No, no, I agree. Uh, it's really depressing. And actually, I'd been in Kaifeng in the mid-80s, you know, and I, I kind of, uh, going back to some of these alleys and seeing that they were earmarked for, you know, demolition and rebuilding, I was really upset. And funnily enough, I got interviewed by the local TV station because, you know, the, the town people had said to them that I was there and I'd been there all those years ago. And I got interviewed and they said, what did I think about Kai Fong? You know, and uh, hmm. uh, I showed them my old map and I said, well, I'll say, say one thing. I think you, you mustn't demolish all these great, these lovely old buildings, even the small, you know, houses in alleyways. It's part of the living life of a town. And when you demolish it, it's kind of gone. And there were all these people by the side of the camera, the kind of crowded gathered, and they were all agreed, you know. But then somebody said to me, oh, but the town council decided, you know, they're going to make some heritage site. So mm. I think it's a real issue. And a lot of people, when you go to somewhere really big and famous like Xi'an, you know, which is where the terracotta army is, where all the tourists right. go, you look at a lot of what you see and you think it's it's so rebuilt or refurbished that where's the ancient in it, you know. Right. So it's a it's a problem. But going off the beaten track, you can certainly still get in touch with it. Well, is, is um, protecting the heritage really the luxury of a wealthy society? And, and China's only come into that sort of affluence in the last decade where they can seriously consider that. No, they're very, very, very keen on the heritage. And they see the heritage as very, very important. And when you see every town advertises its history, they advertise the buildings and everything else. And, and they, there actually is they, something to see. Yeah, but the, the thing is they have a different attitude to what we do in the States or in, in the UK, you know, where we want it to be the actual building that was lived in. Right. And the Chinese think it's actually much nicer if it's rather down at heel or ruinous to just remake it. That It doesn't matter that there aren't any bricks See, now that that's left my problem the... right there. Because if I go into a building yeah. like that, you know, you go to Gnosis or something in, on Crete and it's just like, this is all rebuilt. What's going on? There's nothing yeah. real. Or it's like the Supremes when all the original singers are not there. I know, I know. It's it's uh, it's one of those things, and uh, whenever I went in China, if I, people asked me and I did interviews, I kept saying the same thing: you mustn't demolish everything because it's part of the living past. But it's a funny attitude in China; they're not so bothered about it being the actual yeah. building. Things are more. It's it's almost as if the words and the history and yeah, the poetry the and the survives. music the are more important. Survives. The spirit of it. Now yeah. that's the I positive mean, spin. That might be vi yeah. viable. You know. What about Marco Polo called what Hanzhou the most lovely city in China? How yeah. is that today? Is it worth seeing? Yeah. Oh well, the West Lake in Hanzhou, which you see in our shows, that is still absolutely beautiful. Hanzhou itself is so big that it's a bit of a struggle to, right. you know, when you wander around the city, but the, there are old bits. But the West Lake is still fabulously beautiful, you know, and it's a real pleasure to kind of, you go down in the morning and all around the lake there are these dance platforms and people bring their music out and people that, thousands of people dancing in the morning before they go to work. You know, that's and, the you know, joy just, of China today, isn't it? Just people out doing their dancing and their exercising and enjoying it's, life. It's delightful. It's really delightful. And the thing that you notice very different from 35 years ago is that everybody is an individual, you know. You thought of them 35 years ago as being 
you know, it, it was rather monotonous and people seemed a bit cowed. But everybody's individual now. You won't see one woman is wearing the same as the next. You know, and they'll be wearing leggings with stars on them or kind of incredible bright outfits. And everybody's an individual. That's the most striking difference. China is both the oldest nation on Earth and a major powerhouse of the 21st century. Our guest, Michael Wood, explores how the history of China impacts the nation today in his powerful six-part documentary series, The Story of China. We have links to his work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Michael, your documentary, The Story of China, is not a travelogue. And uh, when most people, you know, get off the cruise ship or whatever, fly in for a quick 10-day trip of China, they'll see the most famous two or three things. Uh, what are those three things? And then what would you counter as being sure to complement those you know, bucket list sites with something that really connects you with China. First of all, what does everybody see? And then what is your advice to round out the experience? Okay, I think everybody goes to see, you go to Beijing and you go to see the Forbidden City, you go to see the Great Wall and, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff and the Ming tombs perhaps. And they are spectacular. But even in Beijing, there are fantastic things to see off the beaten track, you know. They're still in the narrow alleys. There are temples, the Temple of Confucius, the wonderful complex of the Temple of Agriculture, which we had nobody there when we were filming it. Can you believe it? Mm. So you can still get off the beaten track. So everybody does that. And everybody goes to Xi'an to see the, the terracotta army. But, of course, there's no chance of seeing that without thousands of people. Mm -hmm. But I think if I were recommending anybody to go, and you can organize your, your own trips now, you know, it's a really easy place to travel in. Honestly, it's an easier place to go to than a lot of places in the world. I would go to Shanghai, and I would then go inland on the train, and I'd go to that cluster of places. You mentioned Hanzhou with the West Lake. And then there's this place called Suzhou, which is a little further inland, which is they call the Venice of China, where you can stay in like Ming Dynasty merchants' houses, which are now hotels. And it's got a lovely network of canals with little stone bridges and out-of-door cafes and fabulous gardens. The gardens in Suzhou are out of this world beautiful, you know, mm. found, most of them founded from the 1500s onwards, you know. And so if I were going to go back, and I'd absolutely love to go back, <laughs> sounds mad having worked there for so long, but I would go back to and go inland from Shanghai to places like Suzhou and then maybe across the Yangtze River to Yangzhou, which I really also love. But Suzhou is a really great place for a tourist. And then I'd go inland to the place that I told you about, which is the the uh, Huangshan Sacred Mountains and the the countryside there, you can go take your hiking boots and go for lovely walks in the countryside, stay in these little heritage villages and towns, and there's some really great little hotels now, really great. I mean, tourism is, they do it really well, hmm. and the heritage hotels in the towns, you know, converted mansions and things like that are, are very, very nice. And, of course, the food is fantastic, you know. And the welcome I mean, We all is love warm. Chinese food. Yeah, and the we welcome is warm, and people are free the to welcome go. Is warm. You're free to poke around wherever you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, probably like most big cities in Beijing, you know, maybe the welcome may not be, mm. you know, people are more used to foreigners. But right. if you go to these places inland from Shanghai and the, the mountains, about 300 kilometers inland from Shanghai, go by train, go by car, whatever you do. It's fabulous. And when Chinese people meet you walking the paths of the sacred mountains, they just love that you've come, you know, they, they love it. So there are many, many rewards to traveling in China. And I've only given you a sense of a tiny area, yeah. you know, because mm. um, it's so vast. 
Michael Wood, thanks so much for sharing with us a little bit of your experience from spending over two years making your new documentary series, The Story of China, which we've been seeing on public television. Thanks, Michael. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Laptops open, fingers typing, answers to all my mails. Like I don't have time to watch the sun rise up from the city rails. You can listen to Michael Wood's earlier visit with us about his work in China in the Travel with Rick Steves archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. Look for program number 490. It's from July in 2017. Most of us know we should eat less, but how can we eat better? Fred Plotkin has some ideas on how you can truly enjoy the world as a pleasure activist. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. When you travel, how much do you enjoy finding new and different things to eat and drink? Local specialties that you might have never heard of before will certainly add a sensory dimension to your travels. Food expert and music journalist Fred Plotkin is what you might call a bon vivant. He lives in Manhattan and authors the definitive guidebook on Italian food. It's called Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. His work promoting Italian culture around the world earned him a Cavaliere title from the Italian government. That's a rare honor for a foreigner. In promoting the finer things in life, Fred refers to himself as a pleasure activist. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to recommend a few things we can all incorporate into our lives to eat well and to better appreciate the world through all of our senses. Fred, it's good to have you back. A pleasure. You describe your job as a pleasure activist. What do you mean by that? It's a serious business if you don't overdo it, but what I really mean is that we do not, as a culture fully use our senses. We smell, but we don't really absorb the fragrance. We eat, but we don't savor. We hear, but we don't listen. We touch, but we don't really connect. And I believe that we've been given these wonderful resources of the senses, and they are there to give us pleasure, but also knowledge. And therefore, I I turn on all my senses when Hmm. I engage in music and food and any activity in life. That's interesting because I think a lot of us really respect the French for embracing the the beautiful and sensuous things of life. And and they use the word sense a little more broadly than we do. That's how they assess where to go next and how was that and what should I do here. It's all about sensing. When you think about your mission to inspire people to appreciate things better, what are the lost opportunities for travelers when it comes to cuisine. What saddens you when somebody just misses the boat? And uh, what advice would you give us? One of the main things I always say is it's not a test. It's not an exam to be passed. You don't have a bucket list or a checklist. What people lose is when they go in with a prepared sense of what they expect, Mm -hmm. and then they're disappointed, and they don't really realize that what they're encountering may be better or different, but it's their own experience. And if we go in as virgins, let's say, and just allow ourselves to discover something new, to me the pleasure, one of the pleasures of travel is that it's a constant learning curve. And rather than seeking to have confirmed what I think I already know, such as X cheese is the best in the world, I will taste Y cheese that I don't know to learn what it is. And if I don't like it, at least I've learned. And if I love it, then from now on, that might be one of my favorite Hmm. cheeses. 
But the mistakes that one makes are the mistakes of being seduced by touristic attractions in the food department. So, for example, mm -hmm. big fancy stores with glittering food, it's usually too expensive for people to afford, so the food is stale. So don't do that. Mm -hmm. um, I also am a big believer in smaller portions. We should eat less, but we should eat better. Mm -hmm. If you have 10 bites of something, it's not as good as if you have five bites. Hmm. Because with five bites, you savor every one. You see where the dish is ending. But then you go on to something else. If you eat, even if it's delicious, 10 bites are too many. Mm -hmm. Think of the smorgasbord, which was frankly my earliest training in eating, were Norwegian and Swedish restaurants in New York City where I grew up. And I learned that if you take two pieces of herring and one potato, it tastes better than getting 10 pieces of herring and 20 potatoes. And by learning piece by piece by piece, you appreciate. And also, let's never forget that we live in a world where some 800 million people don't have food every day. So we really need to honor and respect our food, keep it sustainable, realize that every food comes from somewhere that perhaps an animal gave its life or perhaps a farmer working very hard and not on enough pay gathered the vegetables and fruits that you're eating. We're connected to something bigger. And we need to defend food, not from a foodie point of view, but from the point of view of understanding that it is a precious resource that gives us life, and it can also give us pleasure. It's a blessing, and it needs to be appreciated. Yes. And I love that idea of don't supersize it. It's not a big gulp culture necessarily. But that puts us as travelers into a, a little bit of a quandary because servings might be big and we want to try a lot of things. What's your philosophy on sharing dishes? Because I like to have that maximum cultural experience. I'd rather go to a more expensive quality restaurant and order more sparingly than go to a mediocre restaurant and, and just go wild. Do you think uh, as we travel and try to appreciate different cultures, there's a place for, for sharing courses? Well, every culture is different. I have a habit, depending on the country, if it's a doggy bag culture like the United States, where the portions are huge, I immediately cut my portion into two or three servings and have them pack the other two. Mm -hmm. If en route from the restaurant to my home or to a hotel, I see a homeless person, I will give them a meal. Hmm. If I don't encounter anyone, then I will bring it home and put it in the fridge. If it's not a doggy bag culture... I will either ask for a small portion, telling the waiter I don't want, I want to sample various things. And they, if they're serious, they know that you're there not to save money necessarily, mm -hmm. but to experience different things in the restaurant. I have also been known, because I'm a big flirt, to talk to strangers in restaurants when I'm alone. And when the food arrives, I will immediately, so there's not a germ issue, separate half the portion and mm -hmm. say, why don't you try this? Yeah. Have you ever had this? Yeah. Let me know what you think. And some people are appalled, but other people yeah. become my friends. I just think if it's in the spirit of celebrating the cuisine and, and you don't want to overeat and just be a glutton and so on, I love that idea of sharing. I'm a real advocate with my tour program of encouraging our guides to try to arrange family-style eating so that we can order more quality and uh, have smaller portions and enjoy a little more diversity. And some cultures lend themselves to that much better than others. I mean, gourmet tapas in Basque country, that's no problem. Are fantastic. But in southern Germany, where they, 
There's a dish called Bauernschmaus, which comes out on a massive platter, and you think it's for four people. It's just for you. Right, yeah. And it's dumplings and meats and so on. That's, and it's just that's, it's that's good, good, but it's overwhelming. <laughs> Fred Plotkin is our favorite pleasure activist here on Travel with Rick Steves. He leads occasional food and opera theme tours for New York Times Journeys and is the author of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler, Opera 101, and Classical Music 101. We have links to Fred's books and blog with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Fred, if you're in a new country and you don't have a listing or a, a recommendation of a restaurant and you're looking for a good restaurant, how do you assess a restaurant just visually before sitting down? Well, for one thing, never ask a concierge in a hotel, never ask a taxi driver, because mm-hmm. they will take you to places that they're familiar with, but they may not be experts. Mm-hmm. I follow what I call the Plotkin nose, which I can't lend out to other people, but I write about it. I have a very discerning sense of smell. And obviously, if something smells off like bad fish or detergent odors or something, I'll walk on by. But the other thing that we have to be careful about is that there are many artificial odors that are manufactured. So there are bakeries in France that put out a butter smell that's not butter. It's manufactured to lead your nose into there. Uh, There are certain huge cinnamon rolls in American airports that do the same thing. Um, There are certain fast foods in America that have a distinct smell, and I can recognize the smell. I don't like it, but I can recognize it. And so what I'd tell people to do instead is look in the window, look at food that you can see, look at who's dining there. Do they look like they're locals? Mm -hmm. And if they are, see how much they're enjoying it. If you see families, if people think that the food is good enough for their children, then you can go in there. Hmm. If it's so-called grown-up food, that's fine too. If you're traveling alone and you see single diners, it's a good place to go unless they look glum. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of places are very good now at accommodating the single person because not everyone eats out all the time in groups. It's so important to be able to, I think, look at the clientele. If a restaurant is good at snaring tourists and it's packed out with people, that's not necessarily a good sign. But if it's, if it's good at building a loyal following and you look in there and it's just local people who know what they want and they're having a great time, I think that's a good sign. I also like to consider the, uh, the location and the rent they must be paying. If you're on a main square, that's quite expensive. If you're a couple blocks away in a little no-name spot with an enthusiastic crowd of local people and the menu looks good, I think you're pretty safe to go in there and eat. But I have one more rule, too. I'm sensitive to noise and If a restaurant is noisy, as in the ceilings reflect sound or Mm -hmm. they're blasting music, Mm -hmm. I don't want to be there because noise makes you eat faster. So they turn the tables over more quickly. I will sooner go into a restaurant with no music on Mm -hmm. and with people having quiet conversation because I know that they are serious about the food because it's not a scene. Mm -hmm. It's about the food. So I, on my uh, smartphone, have a decibel meter, and I will take it out. And after the Plotkin nose says that something is okay, if the decibel meter reads above 75 decibels, I don't go in there. That is so interesting, because my challenge when I'm writing up a bunch of restaurants in Copenhagen or, or Vienna or Madrid is to describe them so people can kind of understand what's the experience going to be like before they go all the way to that place for their meal. And sometimes people are looking for, you know, a high-energy, noisy environment, and sometimes they want 
a more peaceful environment, and it really has an impact on the experience, doesn't it? It certainly does. I love my country. I'm proud to be an American. I would never change it, but we are allowed people. Mm -hmm. And recently I was in Europe, and I noticed in several restaurants that the Americans were speaking at high volume, Mm -hmm. even though there was no music on in the restaurant, and even though the restaurant was not noisy. So I kindly asked my fellow Americans to Mm -hmm. keep your voice down, have conversation at the table, Mm -hmm. of course, Mm -hmm. but we don't have to shout. You know, that's one of my... I guess you could call it a pet peeve, is American insensitivity when it comes to going to a nice restaurant and everybody's talking in hushed tones and all the Europeans have to listen to the Americans in the corner talking so darn loud. So like you, I will politely go over and say, you know, you guys, it would be nice if we uh, kept it down because it's annoying to the rest of the Europeans here. Yes. One uh, thing I find when I'm, when I'm recommending restaurants, Fred, is that my favorite formula in cities like Paris is a mom-and-pop place with about 10 tables, and it's it's big enough for a, a family to run, basically. Uh, one person's in the kitchen and one person's serving, and it's personality-driven. I think of my very favorite restaurants in uh, Trattoria de Beppi. It's got Beppi in Venice and, and uh, Claudio in Rome and Bobo in Florence and so on. Uh, do you find there's a connection there with the size of the restaurant and uh, the owner-operated kind of place? Absolutely, because they take pride in it. It's a family endeavor. I remember the first time I went to Rome was 1973, and I was 17, and there was a mom-and-pop trattoria, and the waiter was the nine-year-old son, and he was the one who spoke English, and his English was much better than my Italian then, and I remember that he came up to me and he said, for after we have fruit, and I thought, well, what's fruit? And then I realized it's fruit, and it makes sense if you look at the word. So here we are decades later, and I still remember his face. He's probably now a grandfather and owns the restaurant on his own. But they take pride. Yeah. And often it's not mom cooking. It could be dad cooking and mom is out front. But most families figure out who the better cook is and who's the more hospitable person. And there's a trattoria I go to in Rome where mom is in the kitchen. There's no dad. But the two sons are waiters, and it's heaven. I love going back there because it's like going to see my friends. And if I go to a little restaurant in some small town in in the countryside, one of my things I look for is a small menu that's in one language and that's handwritten. And my sense is if it's small, they're just cooking up what they can sell profitably and and economically. And it's one language because they're catering to the locals. They're not trying to snare tourists. And it's handwritten because it's not pre-printed in advance, but it's going to flex with whatever's uh, fresh in the market this week. I agree with you entirely, but I do have a separate quirky passion for reading bad menu translations, (laughs) of which there are many, many, many that some are too graphic to say the radio. Some of them are exceedingly anatomical in <laughs> ways that we, oh, we yeah. don't have on American yeah, menus. That's a whole different interview. Um, I think <laughs> I learned from you, Fred, and I think this is very important. If you're a good eater going to a good restaurant, you can look at the menu and know what month it is and where you are. Can you explain that Absolutely. philosophy? That's so fundamental. Absolutely. Because food, when it's good, is seasonal. And so I adore blueberries, and I will eat them in season in North America, But if I see a blueberry in a menu in North America in February, I know it's come from South America or South Africa, and it has no flavor. And there are too many carbon footprint miles on it, so I don't want it. I won't buy it. 
unless they say to me that we froze these berries for they were picked locally in June mm-hmm. and we're using them now. But they need to say that on the menu. Yeah. I mean, people, you go to a market in, in Paris and it says from where all of the produce originated so people know just what the story is. Recently in Paris, I saw string beans from Cameroon and other string beans from Kenya. And the fact that they would distinguish the two and just not say Africa was very interesting to me. And the locals know how to appreciate that difference, I would imagine. Yes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Fred Plotkin. Fred's the author of Italy for the Gourmet Traveler. He leads opera and food trips for New York Times Journeys. Fred, let's just cap this discussion with um, a thought about the value of travel when you come home to New York City. You've spent a lot of time enjoying food all over the world. How is your palate thankful when you get back to New York City that you have that travel experience? Well, because I've inevitably learned something, and I'm regretful then that a product I may have discovered in Helsinki or in Oaxaca, I can't get in New York, or if I do, it's a facsimile of the original. For example, the great rye bread of Helsinki is just something that doesn't Mm. turn up anywhere else, and it's heaven once you've tasted Mm. it, and you, you miss it when you don't have it. So I eat New York food, which is pretty fantastic. And frankly, when I come back, I usually go to my local Chinese restaurant and get cold sesame noodles. That's my re-entry to New York. <laughs> your, your re-entry ritual. My $5 noodles. Fred, it is so great to be inspired once again by my favorite pleasure activist. Thanks so much. You inspire and, uh, me. Thank you. Best wishes in your travels and your eating and your teaching. Thank you. Sans compter cette brioche, saupoudrée de double croche. Mieux que la brioche, celle brio qui me plaît. Bon appétit, mademoiselle, que vos désirs soient satisfaits. C'est pour affirmer notre zèle que nous chantons devant le buffet. Nous chanterons sur tous les thèmes, chacun de nous y met du sien. Pour être un musicien de la crème, Soyons la crème des musiciens. What kinds of sensory surprises do you remember the most from your travels? Some of our Travel with Rick Steves listeners have written us haiku poems and sent them to radio at ricksteves.com to describe some treats they found in their travels. Here are a few we thought you'd enjoy. Debbie Hall of Escondido, California, decided to skip the delicacies being offered by street vendors in China. Beijing Night Market. Deep-fried scorpion skewers. Our feet hurry past. Sally Slaughterback from Lavelle, Pennsylvania, writes us this haiku from a trip to England. Springtime in Devon. Newborn lambs, primroses, praise. Drink cream tea with me. And James Rogers of Pacific, Washington, visited Portugal last fall. It changed his life in at least one way, as he describes in this haiku. In Portugal, this vegetarian fell for the black pork sandwich. Travel with Rick Steves as produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by yours truly Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan Wilner. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff. Thanks to our colleagues at the BBC in London and the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. Thanks to Gretchen Strock for reading our listener travel haiku. 
Read what Rick's been thinking about lately in his online travel blog. Look for Rick's posts on Facebook or at blog.ricksteves.com. And we'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.